I'd like to invite your attention to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, and specifically verses 14 through 20. Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having Receive from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you ever give much thought to how God's work is to be funded? And yes, just to... Put your mind at rest one way or another. I am going to speak about giving today. But I will qualify that by saying, you know, as a church, we have never once begged for money. Uh, we don't uh, uh, get up here each week and spin a sad tale trying to manipulate you or guilt you into giving. Realistically, you could come here every Sunday for a year and hear next to zero sermons about giving and money. Uh, normally, say, why is that? Well, normally the subject of money or whatever it is is addressed when it appears in the text. So it appears in the text today, so we're going to talk about it. So I would ask you this, for your own well-being, don't tune me out. Don't shut me down, okay? Because if you do, you will miss out on God's promised blessing to those who give generously and sacrificially to the work of his kingdom. Now, there are four key words that I'm going to use as we work through this passage. You may want to jot them down and assign them as we go along. The four words are gratitude, generosity, guarantee, and glory. So gratitude, generosity, guarantee, and glory. So let's start with gratitude. So first, we'll look at Paul's gratitude for their generous gift. Now, as we learned last week, this final passage in the book of Philippians is Paul's thank you note, if you will, to them for the generous gift they had sent to him by Epaphroditus. And he expressed his gratitude for their concern for him, their sharing of his trouble, and, of course, the meeting of his physical needs. Now, before we go any further, I do want to take perhaps two or three minutes and show you a connection between the preceding paragraph that we looked at a couple weeks ago, or last week, and what we're going to look at this week. Now, I understand that at the time that Paul wrote this letter and they received this letter, they had already been generous to him. I understand that. But I do think that there is a connection here that we need to make ourselves aware of. And that is this. One of the results of contentment is generosity. We spoke a lot on uh, contentment last week. One of the results or the consequences of contentment is generosity. 
And that shouldn't be at all difficult for us to connect the dots here. Say, how so? Because if you are content with what you have, if your joy and your satisfaction and your contentment are all found in Christ and all that he is for you and all that he is to you, then why would it be a problem for you to give away those things in which you're not finding your joy and your satisfaction and your contentment? It's not difficult to part with those things that are incapable of providing contentment to us. And if you have come to the point that you understand that your contentment is never to be found in physical things, that contentment is not to be found in what we have or what our status level in society is, then that frees us up to release our hold on the material and physical things that are incapable of providing contentment to us. If you have come to the place where you understand that contentment is not found in physical things, will never be found in physical things, it just is freeing for us, isn't it? Because those things no longer have a hold on us. So I believe that it is legitimate to say that generosity and contentment go hand in hand. Again, if I am content with all that the Lord has provided for me, if I'm finding my joy and my satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ, then what I, whatever else I may or may not have doesn't really matter because he's my true joy. He is my greatest possession. He is the pearl of great price. Therefore, I can take whatever he has given to me and I can generously share it with others. Why? Because my contentment is not found in what I own. It's not found in what I have or even how many uh, uh, zeros may be in my bank account with a crooked number in front of it, amen. Uh, my contentment is found in Christ, and therefore I can be generous with my time, with my money, or whatever the Lord has blessed me with. So, if we struggle with generosity, could it be that we're not content? Could it be that if we struggle with being generous with what God has given to us, we have not yet learned to be content? And let me add, add this uh, to parents. As parents, part of your responsibility is, is to teach contentment to your children. Right? Now, I realize that's, that's hard to do in this day and age because uh, kids are constantly bombarded with advertisement, the Disney this, Disney that. You know, uh, you know, they can get online and watch these YouTube videos of these. I don't understand why anybody watches them, but kids do. The, the, the toy reveals, you know. What I really don't understand is, 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 is the adults doing them, but that's for another day, I guess. Uh, but, you know, these kids are constantly bombarded with the, all these kind of messages. And so guess what they want? They want everything they see. They just want more and more and more. So you as a parent need to begin to teach them that contentment can only be found in where? In Christ. And by the way, when you begin to teach your children that contentment can only be found in Christ, that is a tremendous, marvelous opportunity for you to share what? The gospel with them. See? 
This is how you parent according to the gospel. You take these situations that your children are exposed to and you show them how the gospel helps them deal with this situation. Okay. We all know the desire for more begins in childhood. And it doesn't decrease as you become a teenager or a young adult or for that matter, an old geezer like me. You always want more, 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 more. Well, the secret, as we saw last week, is to learn contentment in Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, back to our text. The believers in Philippi were, gave generously and sacrificially to meet the needs of the Apostle Paul. And so we have to ask, why did they do that? Uh, did Paul send them a, a missionary letter telling them how bad he has it? If he just had a little bit more money, what great things he could do? No. There was no manipulation on Paul's part. There was no guilt trip on Paul's part. Why did they give so generously? Well, the reason was their faith in Christ. You say it's as simple as that? It's as simple as that. Those who have been born again gravitate towards generosity especially as we meditate on and come to a deeper understanding of the gift that we have been given through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, as believers, we understand that we are created in the image of God. And part of God's image is that he is a giver. Who wants to quote John 3.16 for me? For God so loved the world that he gave that he gave, therefore, to be created in the image of God is to be a giver by nature. Now, in this passage, there is a double blessing. The first part of this double blessing is found in the gift that they sent to the Apostle Paul. The gift that they sent to him was a blessing to Paul. He says in verse 14 that it was kind of them to share in his trouble. Let's think about the trouble that Paul was experiencing that they shared in. First of all, where was he at? He was under house arrest. He was in a prisoner of Rome awaiting trial. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that he had been forgotten and deserted while he was in Rome. As he opened the letter, in the very first opening of the letter to them, he relayed to them that there were some who were taking advantage of his imprisonment and they were preaching Christ out of selfish ambition with a desire to afflict Paul while he is in prison. That certainly had to have been painful for him and contributed to his trouble. But part of his trouble also lay in the uncertainty of his future. Remember, he's awaiting trial. And as he writes this note of thanks to them, he doesn't know whether he will live or die. He has no idea whether or not he will ever see them face to face again. More part of his trouble is this, that he was alone, separated from his friends. His freedom was obviously denied him. Paul, we've talked about this before, before his confinement, he was a man on the go. He was a man on the move. He was planting churches. He was visiting churches that he had planted. He was always constantly on the move. He was caring for the churches that he, he had planted. But now he finds himself under house arrest and his freedom is no more. It's totally non-existent. But that wasn't the extent of his trouble. 
All the while that he's under house arrest, he's responsible for paying for his room and board, as it were. Somehow, he had to come up with the money to buy his meals, to pay his rent, whatever else he needed. And think about this. You are under house arrest. It's well nigh impossible for you to earn the money to meet the most basic needs. Rome certainly wasn't providing for his needs. And by Paul's own testimony, most of the other churches that he had planted and that he had ministered to, they weren't supporting him. But thankfully, the church at Philippi came alongside of Paul and helped him in his time of trouble. So he writes this portion of his letter to express his gratitude for their kindness and sharing in his trouble. And we learn from the letter that they had been uh, consistent supporters of Paul. He refers to this in verse 15. Look at verse 15. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, and I'll notice this, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. We have no idea the reasons why. But we know the what. They simply did not give to Paul. But now this is the first time. Now I, I want to go back and point something out here. Paul uses the word partnership here. And this isn't the first time that he's used it. If you go back to chapter 1 verse 5. He says because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I point this out because that word partnership has to do with sharing. They had become partners with Paul in the work of the gospel. In other words, they provided the necessary resources that allowed Paul to plant churches and to continue to minister and provide pastoral care to those churches. And the resources that they provided to him allowed him to train and raise up Leaders and elders that these churches desperately needed. And we can think of this partnership between Paul and the Philippians in business terms, just to help us understand what Paul is saying here. If Paul were a publicly held company and he issued shares of stock, their gifts to him would be similar to them buying into the company. Now, what happens when you buy shares of stock? Well, you hope that your investment does well. You want to see it grow. You want to see a return on your investment. Well, just as they shared in his ministry, by providing the necessary resources, so too would they share in the blessings and the rewards of Paul's ministry. Why? They shared in his ministry. They were partners in ministry with him. So again, if we use the stock analogy, their return on their investment was their sharing in the blessings and the rewards, or as Paul describes it, the fruit of his ministry to all the churches that he had planted and to all the people that he had ministered to. And all those who had come to faith in Christ they would, be, they would share in that. 
Now let's just relate this to missions. Why do we give to missions? Well, part of the reason is it's needed. But as an added benefit, guess what? You're going to benefit from that in the long term. Because your missions dollars is going to be put to work, whether it's in Scotland or South Africa or Canada or wherever it may be. And as God uses that to build his kingdom, we'll see here in a few moments, that gets credited to your account. And there will be people in heaven, if you've given to missions, you've been faithful and generous in your giving, there will be people in heaven that will be there as a result of that giving. That's an awesome thought, isn't it? And there's a vital principle here, and that is this. God's kingdom is built by God's people as they generously give to support the work of God's kingdom. God's kingdom is built by God's people as they generously give to support the work of God's kingdom. When you and I generously share of our resources... We will also share in the blessings and the rewards that God gives to those who invest in building his kingdom and not their own. Remember, when you give to support the work of God, you're part of a double blessing. The first part was Paul was blessed. So that's the first part of it. But as they gave to Paul, they were investing in themselves. And they were investing in themselves by investing in the kingdom of God. Remember this. When you give to support the work of God, again, you're part of that double blessing. Verse 17. Let's go back. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So, again, Paul reminds them he's not seeking a gift for his own benefit as much as he is seeking a benefit for them. That's what he's saying here. Their generosity wasn't really towards him. Certainly he benefited from their generosity, but he understood that they were giving to God. Can I say that again? Paul wanted them to see that even though they were giving to him and he benefited from it, he wanted them to understand that as they gave to him, they were in actuality giving to God. That's so important that we wrap our minds around that. Here's why. Many times people will say, God doesn't need my money. Have you ever had anybody, heard anybody say that? Well, there's a couple of things to consider. First, it ain't your money. It ain't your money. So that's not good grammar, but it's good theology. It is not your money. If you don't think uh, that it's not God's money, let another pandemic come along and shut your company down. Right? So it's God's money. It's God's money and he provides it for you. It's an important principle. Second, there is a sense in which God doesn't need your money, but you need the promises that God makes to those who give generously and sacrificially. God doesn't need your money, but you need the benefit that comes from giving. Now, Paul uses the word fruit here, and fruit is something tangible. It's real. And as he uses the term here, the fruit was the result or the consequence of their giving. Their giving was producing real results. 
Their giving was making an impact. Now, there's one thing that we know about fruit, and that is that it doesn't just magically appear. What's the first thing that has to happen in order for fruit to grow? Well, the first thing that must happen is a seed must be planted. And after a while, that seed germinates, and before long, it sprouts through the soil. And over time, as that tree reaches maturity, if it's a fruit tree, what's it going to do? It's going to produce fruit. See, likewise, when we give, it may take a while to see the fruit, but there will be fruit. So we have to be patient even in our giving. We can't give one week and demand immediate results the next week. Uh, the word that Paul, uh, Paul says, again, I want to emphasize it. It's not the gift that I wanted. What I really wanted was the fruit that would grow and increase over time and would be of long-term benefit to you. Now, if you refuse not to give because you think that you're better off in the short term by not giving, that's one approach you can take. And to a certain extent, that's true. You're better off in the short term because you've kept your money. But ultimately, in the long term, you lose. But when you give, you accrue long-term gains. That's what Paul's trying to get us to see here. Now, the word that Paul used here is also used in financial markets. It was used to describe the interest that an investment would make over time. It was compounding interest that would continue to grow over time and that their initial investment would be multiplied many times over. Go home and Google what is compound interest. You need to know what it is anyway. But it's powerful. It can either work for you or against you, amen? See? And this was Paul's desire for them. He wanted them to have part in the blessing that God promises to those who invest in his kingdom. Commentator Grant Osborne says, with a financial investment, interest accrues on a daily basis and is available at any time, though the full benefits will be paid in the future. So following, following Paul's metaphor, God's blessing on the Philippians for all they had invested in Paul would be experienced every day as they took part in seeing the gospel bringing people into the kingdom, as well as in the unfolding of the longer-term effects of Paul's ministry. These present blessings were there at all times. Moreover, when Christ returned, they would receive all the fruit they had earned and they used, as they used their gift of helping. Their other spiritual gifts, and he's referring to the fruit of the Spirit, would increase exponentially as God blessed them in every part of their life. Do you see what he's saying there? When we give, it impacts, influences every area of our lives so that we are able to achieve maximum value or fulfill our potential for Christ. So the first step in this process of fruit was the act of generosity that they gave to the Apostle Paul. And we have to keep in mind that they gave from a very limited supply. See, these weren't a bunch of rich folk giving so they could get a tax break. Would you believe it? There are people who only give to the church because it helps them with their taxes. 
And what if you lose your tax break? Does that mean you won't give? No. See, when you give of your resources, the Bible's clear, you're storing up treasure in heaven. And when you give, you're not losing anything, but you're gaining everything. What you give is being invested. And guess who's the ultimate invested investment counselor? God is. So when you give, you're putting up treasure, which no man can steal, which no bank can default upon, and no scammer can take from you. There is no investment more secure in all the world than the investment of the Christian who invests in the kingdom of God. Now, there's another truth here at verse 17 that we learn, and that, that is this. When you as a Christian are obedient in your giving, you're increasing your own account balance with God. But let me say this, unless you think, oh, oh he's going off the health, wealth, and prosperity deep end. No, no, no. You do not give to get. That is prosperity gospel message. We do not give to get. Say again, why, why then do I give as a Christian? And the easy answer is, well, the Bible tells you to. Well, if we're not careful, we'll fall into the trap of legalism. Well, I've given, so there. I got that out of the way. Well, God loves us, what? A cheerful giver. So why do I give as a Christian? Because, again, I'll go back to the fact that God is a giver and that I'm made in the image of God, and therefore I give. I don't give to get. My giving is to be motivated by gratitude. My giving is to be motivated that God and his grace has done for me, which I could never do for myself. I was in a desperate, hopeless situation, and unless God rescued me, I would eternally perish. I think that I would give out of gratitude for that, wouldn't you? In fact, Paul says that we as Christians have been given a gift that he describes as inexpressible. In other words, there are not words to describe the value of this gift that has been given to us. So, first G, Paul expressed gratitude for their giving that helped meet his needs. Second is the generosity of their gift that helped meet the needs of the Apostle Paul. Look at verse 18. Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphrodites the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Those who understand what God has done for them through the Lord Jesus Christ, they give generously. That's what the Philippians did. And as he thanks them, he tells them, listen, I've received full payment and more. I've got all of my needs met, thank you, and there's a little bit left over. Why? Because they have given generously and they have given sacrificially. And again, I will emphasize the fact that many of them had lost their jobs. And with a loss of jobs comes a loss of income. And why did they lose their jobs? Why did they lose their incomes? Because of their faith in Christ. They were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. But here's the key point. They did not let their poverty keep them from giving. I can't tell you how many times I've heard as a pastor, well, when I get more, I'll give. Wrong answer. Can't back it up from the Bible. Okay. The Philippians gave generously out of their poverty, which means they gave sacrificially. But I want you to notice how Paul describes their gift. He describes it 
as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, if we've read the Bible even once through, uh, his words immediately remind us of what? The Old Testament sacrifices. And many times the sacrifices and the offerings of the people of God are described as fragrant offerings and pleasing aromas. And many times there is actually even incense offered along with the sacrifice. We first read this when the floodwaters receded and Noah threw open the doors of the ark and the animals scattered and he was lucky enough to catch one and made a sacrifice of it. In Genesis 8, 21, we, we, re, we read this, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aromas, the pleasing aroma of what? The sacrifice that Noah made. It was a pleasing aroma to God. Exodus 29, and we could look at several other places. Exodus 29, we read, and burned the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. Now, just as God was pleased with the sacrifices of his people in the Old Testament, so too was he pleased by the sacrificial giving of the believers from the church at Philippi. And I don't know about you, again, that is motivation enough for me to give, to know that, listen, it's not the amount. Quit thinking about amounts. It's the attitude and the willingness that you are willing to give to God. And you know what? God is pleased with that. That is another motivation to give. You know, we, we probably ask ourselves from time to time, how can I please God? Well, one way is when we give. When we give back out of what he has given to us. Have you ever pulled in your driveway or in my case, I pull in the match driveway, and I get out of the car. Oh, and there's this aroma. The smoker's going, and there's a brisket on there. Oh, you just want to stand there and take it in. You know, one of my enduring memories of childhood is walking into my grandmother's house and the smell of fresh baked bread would wrap around me like a warm blanket. I walked in Alex and Amanda's here a few weeks ago and uh, let Alex's secret out. He's a bread baker. And I'm like, mmm, smells so good. You know? Likewise, when God's people give generously and sacrificially, it is pleasing to God. It's an offering acceptable to God. And if we just stop for a moment and think about what Paul's teaching, I think we begin to see our giving in a whole other dimension. When we give, we're giving directly to God. When we give, we're doing something that pleases God. And so the Philippians gladly and generously gave to Paul, and Paul was grateful for their gift, but he wanted them to understand that when they gave to him, they were giving to God. And just as the Old Testament saints, when they brought that lamb or that bull to the priest, they understood they weren't offering it to the priest. They understood they were offering it to God. And Paul wanted the Philippian believers to understand that what they were giving to him, they were actually offering it to God. And I wonder, would that change your level of generosity if you understood 
that what you are giving is actually being given to God. And listen, I don't want you to think in terms of money. I know that's where our mind goes first. But it's more than money. It's your time. It's your talent. It's your resources. You know, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but Rachel Crabtree, she's a fantastic designer, and I, I bug her way too often, and she does the she does the banners for us out there and everything in our gift bag she has done. And, and you know, just she's, she's, what she's doing, she's giving of her time and her talent. You guys that come up here and cut the grass, you guys that come up here and clean the building, what are you doing? You're making an investment. You say cutting the grass is an investment in God's kingdom? Well, let me ask you this. Would you rather, uh, would you rather have someone visit the church and the grass is three foot high? Or it looks nice and manicured and the flowers look good and the mulch is where it should be? Or would you rather we had adopted the attitude of the, the abandoned house over here and let it grow and grow and grow and poor old boys over there trying to cut limbs out of the roof and everything else? Which would you rather do? You say, yeah, that's an investment in God's kingdom. Would you rather walk into a church that looks like it hasn't been... T have you ever... I have. Have you ever been to a church that looks like it hasn't been cleaned in a decade? I don't want to disparage the church that was here before us, but that was this place. But it's about five decades, you know? And then churches wonder, well, why, why can't we get anybody to come? You know? Well, if I wanted to go see filth, I'd just stay home. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Listen to what Jesus had to say about giving. In Matthew chapter 10, and Emily will like this, I'm quoting the New American Standard. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. And then he says, Jesus says, freely you received, freely give. Now that's what Jesus says. This is the attitude that you ought to have with whatever I've blessed you with. This is the attitude you ought to have. You received it freely, give it freely. And then in Luke chapter 6, Verse 38, again from the New American Standard. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Do you see the picture here? I have in my mind's eye Ruth. Right? And the guy's name just slipped my name. It slipped my mind. Boaz, thank you. Boaz supplies her with grain. And he starts pouring. And he gets about halfway full. He says, here, let me, uh, let me press this down for you a little bit. He pours a little bit more and he says, hey, let me shake it. Now, why do we shake things? It causes them to settle, right? And as things settle, you have more room. And he pours and he pours and he pours and it starts running over. Now that's what Jesus says, give and it will be given to you. Now, but I want you to go to, go to Luke 6.38 with me. And I want you to see the last part of this verse. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Now notice this. For by your standard of measure, 
it will be measured to you in return. What's going on here? In God's economy, you decide on your return of investment. Right? Wouldn't it be great if you could go to see Amanda at Park or Matt at U.S. or Sherry at Chase? I don't want to leave any of the bankers out. And you'd say, hey, I got a grand and I'm ready to invest it. And uh, I would like a thousand percent return on my money. Wow, sign me up for that deal, amen. And one of these greedy bankers says, who are you kidding? We'll give you a quarter of a percent. Take it or leave it. Right? Why is that? Because you can't decide what the return on your investment is going to be. But according to Jesus, you determine your rate of return by the amount of the investment you're willing to make. Now again, this is in proportion to what you have. Jesus is not saying, listen, the, the threshold's about a million bucks. Now, once you, you hit that, boy, you can really expect a return. No, no. If you're a minimum wage worker, and nothing wrong with that, and you give generously and sacrificially out of your minimum wage, guess what? God's going to bless that amount according to the investment that you make. Again, you don't give to get, but God blesses those who give generously and sacrificially. Now, real quick, what is the difference between giving generously and giving sacrificially? All right, so let's name three pretty wealthy people. Uh, we'll start with uh, Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett, and Elon Musk. By all accounts, they have a couple coins to run, rub together, right? So let's say that uh, Warren Buffett gives a million dollars to some person or some cause. That would certainly be generous. Hey, I don't care. A million bucks is a million bucks, amen? So that's generous. But for none of those guys would it be a sacrifice. Why? Because they got tons more money. So it is possible to be generous with your money, but not sacrifice with your money. It's possible to give generously, but not give sacrificially. But as a Christian, we are to both be generous givers and sacrificial givers. You remember the, the, the widow lady that... Uh, Jesus observed in Luke 21, Jesus looked and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow put in two small, two small copper coins and he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. Now the disciples probably scratching their head, what are you talking about? So he says, for they all contributed out of their abundance. This was Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and Elon Musk giving. They may have been given generously, but they weren't given sacrificially. 
So Jesus says, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Jesus says what she gave was a sacrifice for her. Jesus says she gave out of her poverty. That's what the Philippians did when they gave to Paul. They gave out of their poverty. And let's be honest, doesn't that sound strange to us today? I don't think Dave Ramsey would counsel us to do that. I've heard some of these quote-unquote Christian, and I'm not saying this about Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey fans, leave me alone. I've heard some of these Christian financial planners say, listen, if you're in debt, you shouldn't tithe, you shouldn't give anything to church you get out of debt. Wrong. 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 You don't rob God because you got into debt. And to think you're going to get out of debt without God's help, wrong, wrong, wrong. It is never foolish to give back to God generously and sacrificially. It's never foolish to give back to God when your budget is tight. Say, why is that? How do you know that's true? That brings us to our third G, the guarantee. The guarantee that accompanies the gift. What is the guarantee? Well, look at verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, here's another one of those very familiar verses to us. And another one of these verses that's probably misapplied more often than it's properly applied. And Paul knew that the, many of the believers at Philippi gave despite their own need. Now, let's think this through. Paul had a need for food, clothing, and shelter, correct? Yes. Did the Philippians have a need for food, clothing, and shelter? Yes. But they gave to Paul to meet his need despite having the same needs themselves. And Paul wanted them to know that when they did that, they did not have to worry about having those basic needs met. If they gave to him out of their poverty for food, clothing, and shelter, guess what? God was going to make sure that those basic needs were going to be met in their life as well. Why? Because just as they gave to Paul to meet his needs, God has promised to meet the needs of his children. The book of Proverbs says, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the poor, and he will repay him for his deed. You know, I, I, you probably have heard this many times. God is uh, no man's debtor. Okay. Again, Grant Osborne is helpful here. He writes the phrase, all your needs is, of course, as broad as possible, meaning every single need they had, social, spiritual, material, etc. Yet given the context of the passage, meaning believers providing financial support, Uppermost in Paul's mind was God taking care of their material needs amid their poverty. Now listen, I know, I know this raises some difficult questions. And I'm not sure that I can answer them, but I will try and answer some of them next week. But let me close with this. Let's pay attention to what Paul says. He says, and my God will supply every need Write that down, circle it, start, highlight it, whatever. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And I'll just close with this. God has promised to supply our needs 
not our wants. Okay. And I know there are times when we have a hard time distinguishing between, well, what is a want and what is a need? You may think or you may want a better job, but God knows you don't need the better job. Or you could apply that in many areas of your life. Okay. Well, again, I think we'll stop here this week and we'll explore the guarantee. I want to I give it the time that it deserves next week and then we'll look at the glory as well.